business class listeners, you're tuned in to Wisco Weekly. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Wisco Weekly. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Memorial Weekend is upon us. And boy, starting to feel a little bit closer to normal these days. I've seen a lot of people out and about. One of the things that sticks out in my head right now is watching Phil Mickelson win the latest golf championship in South Carolina PGA championship at the age of 50 and there was just a crowd of thousands of people gathered around him hardly wearing any masks the staff was masked up but boy that was just heartwarming to see Phil Mickelson and just in general and just people getting back to sporting events and just consuming sports being outside, being with one another. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Anyhow, business class on this episode, I want to answer some frequently asked questions that I often receive. I'm not going to be able to do all of them, but certainly uh, I've narrowed it down to at least five that I could lump them into. And I'll try to do these every month because there, there are definitely some certain questions that I will get asked and they're a bit more hyper-focused. For instance, one subject I'm going to touch upon in this episode is lemon laws, or if your car is a lemon. So that was something that recently I had a client of mine come to me and ask me about. She had no idea what she had to do. She was wanting to hire an attorney, and it turns out that she didn't have to do much of all of that. And if you look at the history of her interactions with the dealership, yeah, she's she's she was going in the direction of having a vehicle that was deemed a lemon. So we're going to get to some of these most popular uh, questions that I get asked on a on a regular basis. If you're not already tuned in to, or if you're not already subscribed to Wisco Weekly, look to follow. Wisco Weekly on any popular podcast app that you're listening to. And also you could follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn. Those are probably the two best places to follow me. And if you're a new listener of the show, boy, it looks like uh, over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of consumption of uh, some of the particular episodes, some of the investing ones too. I will look to do more investing type episodes. I mean, certainly a lot of the direction over the last few months, I've been talking more about finance and investing more so than, you know, dealership customer experience, uh, marketing, culture, transportation policy, things of that nature. I think right now finance and investing is kind of top of mind for me. And perhaps probably a, a just a quick digression. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about often, often is how to get females, how to get women, how to get daughters specifically. I don't have a daughter, but I do know that, for instance, let's say my sister, my sister 
is taken care of basically for the rest of her life. And she doesn't even know. She has no idea. She has no idea how much money she has in her investments account. My, my father has just done a phenomenal job ensuring that her future is taken care of and she doesn't have to work. But she has no idea. And it just got me thinking more and more. How can I now help out most of the women out there who, in a lot of ways, if if you don't, if you're not into investing, if you're not into financial management, you know, usually you kind of have to be involved in that field or you have to study that in college. Otherwise, if you're if you're not into that stuff, that's not something that most women think about and talk about. So that's something that I'm trying to actively think about what I can do to help more women uh, understand, get involved, make it a priority so that they could take their finances and their investing to a whole nother level. Okay, so let's let's talk about some of the more popular questions I get asked. The first one is a fairly easy one, and it's, Dennis, should I buy, lease, or rent a car? And there's there's not a lot of easy answers to this. Of course, a lot of it has to depend on your budget. Right now, new car deals aren't as aggressive. The incentives that you may qualify from the manufacturer and other incentives, you know, subsidized rates and things of that nature, there aren't, they aren't, there's not as much aggressive uh, deals at the end of the day out there. However, they're not impossible to find. The thing is, you just also can't be picking a lot of ways of the color and the options. So if you're looking for a new car, you know, just just have a bit more empathy of what you want to of what you want to get. So then if you do get a new car, do you want to should you buy or should you lease it? Again, depends on your finances. I for one am a good citizen of both owning and leasing a car. That's kind of the setup that I have had now for over 10 years. I have a car that I own outright. It's my workhorse. It's my white stallion. It's my 2012 Honda Pilot. That's the car that I use often to go to Home Depot runs or even most recently I attached a tow hitch to it. So then now when I, my wife and I want to ride bikes, that's the vehicle that we use. It's a no sweat vehicle. Again, it's all paid off and fairly low miles. And again, it, it does what I need it to do. The other car that we have is a 2020 thing is 2020 Audi A5 lease. And that's that's our nice car. It's it's a very nice car to drive. I love Audis. Obviously, if you can see from the shirt, right? I'm a big Audi guy. Most of you maybe already know that. So I like the model of buying and owning a car that I do not have any more payments on. And then I enjoy the luxuries of leasing a luxury vehicle. Now, Again, you have to do things depending on on your budget. And like I said, deals at the end of the day, they're not going to be as great as they once were. And they'll they'll come back. Deals will come back. I understand that uh, you know, right now a lot of times you may be paying sticker for vehicles and for some of you that might not be an issue because you really do like the car and you know what? That's what you, that's what should happen. You should like the car that you were not just driving but you are also paying for. You need to like it. And if you have to pay sticker, you, that's what you have to do. Interestingly, I received a question that more compared, should I buy or rent a car? And my gut instinct on that was like, well, 
buy the car? Why would you ever want to rent a car? And in my head, I was trying to make an argument. I was trying to play devil's advocate in my head of making an argument to why someone should rent a car versus buying a car. And it's, I don't have a good answer for that yet. The simplest answer is that in the short run, sure, you could probably look to rent a car. Renting a car in the short term does make sense. It kind of gives you that combination of uh, you know, a quick fix with a fairly reasonable payment. And then, you know, on the other side, it doesn't lock you in. And plus, should anything happen to that car, provided you get the insurance, then everything is square. You don't have anything to worry about. But there are, there are times, for instance, that you may need to rent a car a little bit longer because life is in limbo. And I think that's ultimately where renting makes better sense. Can you just rent a car because, or you should rent a car because life is in limbo right now. You don't know where you're moving. You don't know what jobs uh, may be coming about. Perhaps you're unemployed at the moment, but you just, you still need to get somewhere. So renting a car makes sense there. Now there's long-term rentals. There are short-term rentals. You know, there's even the rent sharing model. No, it's just the car sharing model like the Turo's of the world. Turo's a company, if you've already heard of them, Turo's a company where you can essentially rent vehicles from individual owners of that vehicle. Turo's expected to go public via a SPAC, special purpose acquisition company. I think it's later this year. That's always an option. I've tried Turo a couple times. It it's fun. I, I only did it because I did it out of fun as opposed to I needed to rent a car. But if you it, if you're able to borrow a friend's car, you're it's probably a better bet than renting, to be honest with you. I think the other situation though that may be a bit more, more applicable is a company called Swapalise, if you've heard about them. Swapalise allows you to basically take take over the remainder of of an existing lease. Now, that's not to say that you're going to somehow get this awesome deal. In a lot of ways, you're you're not going to get that great of a deal. You might get a lower payment, but you're still going to have to put money out of pocket. And a lot of that is a combination of what the leasing company, what the what the lender is asking for if you if that lease gets transferred over to somebody else. Sometimes it could also be from the actual lessor, what are, you know, his or her costs of, of, of swapping that lease out to you. If you're going to go that route, I highly, highly suggest you also do that short term, like a rental. I think if you extend it out, if you're looking to do a two-year lease on a, you know, swap a lease car, I, I think that's a bad bet. You're essentially creating more unnecessary risk for yourself because you're taking over this lease that I mean I guess I to be honest I I would have to see all the numbers but certainly if you were to lease a brand new car you can there's there's way more negotiations that can occur to allow you get to get a better deal as opposed to if you take over someone else's lease if you want to do a swap lease short term go for it makes sense have fun with it Though at the same time, again, practice financial responsibility. 
So buy, lease, rent, those, that's a question I often get asked. I normally go through a little presentation to discuss the benefits of buy versus leasing, but certainly I think it is the best bet that if you are able to have a car that you own and then lease a car, hey, you get the best of both worlds. And as long as you can afford it, hey, more power to you, right? Another question I often get is, and I actually probably get this more than, this is probably one of the number one questions I always get. And it's folks that just send me cars, specifically used cars, and they're asking me, Dennis, is this a good car? Is this a good deal? And this is something that I've, I've thought about deeply and I fi- I've, I've put together this formula in my head that is called FMP, Fit Mileage Price. FMP, Fit Mileage Price. It's the model I use internally to audit a car. Auditing a used car. It's a combination of, well, the fits of that car. It, does it have all the features you're looking for? Does it have the color? Is it the right model? Right? That, that's the fit of it. The mileage. How does that mileage rank versus other vehicles that are in the marketplace? And the price. Is it, again, is it not only within budget, but is it also price competitively? Right now, the used car market is inflated. You could still find some deals out there. You can still find some vehicles that are non-certified. You could find vehicles that are, you know, here's actually another thing that I would recommend to you if you're looking at a used car. Look to buy private party. Look to buy private party. You could definitely negotiate. You could definitely find some good deals. I mean, I think... I don't know what the latest number is, at least in 2020 or 2021, but at least prior to that, 2018, 2019, there's, there's like 40 million used cars that are sold private party. That's a, lot, that's a lot of used cars that are out there, 40 million. Now, there's some downsides if you want to buy a used car that's private party. One of the biggest things is the fact that there's no, there's no um, recourse. There's no legal recourse should something happen to that vehicle. Right. That's the whole idea of why dealerships are are around is that you can essentially seek out some sort of recourse of that vehicle if there's if there's an issue with that vehicle. You could take it back to the dealer, have them fix it. And if worst case scenario, you can essentially look to sue the dealer, sue the bring on a lawsuit to with the dealer, with the manufacturer, and demon a lemon. But before I touch upon that lemon aspect. Again, auditing a used car. Does that car have all the features that you are looking at, that you were looking for in that car? Is it, is it a car that has a good number, you know, it has decent mileage on there? How do I know if it's decent mileage, Dennis? That's a, rel- that's a relative metric. True. Take a look at the Carfax. Take a look at the vehicle history. The vehicle history tells you a lot it's not just a matter of, hey, this car was serviced on these particular dates, but if there's any recalls, it'll tell you any outstanding recalls. You can usually spot out trends. So for instance, if a vehicle was regularly serviced, you can see the trend that it's been every 10,000 miles, for instance. A lot of vehicles these days have used, or, you know, use synthetic oil. If you don't see that trend, that one year it's serviced at 7,000 miles, 
And then the next year, it's serviced at 15,000 miles. Well, that's probably, you know, more of an indication of the owner than the vehicle, but certainly something to spot out. So certainly something that you want to, um, you know, keep your eyes open for as you qualify that car and as you ask questions about that car. Why is it that this vehicle was serviced initially at 7,000 miles and the next service was done at, you know, 20,000 miles? Private party person or dealer, what was going on there? The other thing that you can look to do when you audit a used car is, again, looking at the vehicle history report, what was the first date of in-service? What was the date the vehicle was first sold? That tells you a lot. For instance, we're in the year 2021. I may be looking at a, a 2020 Audi A5. Let's just use that as an example. And I see a, a car, a one-year-old car, a 2020 Audi A5. It has 12,000 miles on there, fairly low. I take a look at the Carfax. I take a look at the vehicle in service date, the date the car was first sold. And guess what? Even though the model year is 2020, the date the car was first sold was it actually in 2019, which means my warranty, which is a four-year warranty from the manufacturer, that doesn't start, that started actually in 2019 and not 2020. So you actually when you, you know, if I'm looking to get that car right now in 2021, well, that means the warranty expires in 2023. That's two years. That's not three years. So that's one thing you got you to gotta be mindful of. So then this takes me to the lemon, the lemon law, or a vehicle that's a lemon. Now, this is a very important topic here because I think the first thing that a lot of people think about is Something's wrong with my vehicle. It must be a lemon. I'm going to take it back, and a dealer has to take it back. It's a lemon. And no, that's not exactly how that works out. Lemon law is a very specific policy, let's say specifically in California and everywhere else, but let's say specifically in California, that there has to be a reasonable attempt for the dealer to fix that vehicle. Let me read you specifically, actually, what the California Lemon Law is. The California Lemon Law protects you when your vehicle is defective and cannot be repaired after a reasonable number of attempts. And reasonable is in quotations. In such instances, the manufacturer must either replace or repurchase the vehicle, whichever you prefer. The Lemon Law applies to most vehicles purchased or leased in California that are still under a manufacturer's new car warranty. The Lemon Law also applies to used vehicles when they are still under a manufacturer's new car warranty. Lemon Law Lemon vehicles that are bought back by dealers and then resold must be identified as a lemon buyback and have a lemon sticker on their door. When lemon buybacks are not properly disclosed and sold as is, the buyer may still have rights under the lemon law. So there has to be, the big thing is that there has to, there has to be a reasonable number of attempts to fix that vehicle. And I want to say it's, 
about six months. If, if, if in the time frame of six months, right, because usually you might take your car over to a, a manufacturer or I'm sorry, to a dealer, they may hold on to it for a month or two months, right? So that they can fix it so that parts, parts can come in, they could fix it, then you get it back. Sometimes that may take a while. So within a period of about six months, and if it's longer than that, you have a stronger case and you keep bringing the vehicle back. And that vehicle still doesn't get fixed. Maybe it's one particular issue, let's say dealing with the air conditioning. And maybe through time, there's also then another issue, maybe something with regards to the, to the brakes. And after a reasonable number of attempts, if there's no essentially manufactured defect, and essentially there's something specifically wrong with that particular car, you know, when I say that there's no manufactured defect, as in usually if, if there's a manufactured defect, it could be, you know, solved fairly quickly. But if there's something more serious, if there's a very serious underlying issue with the vehicle, well, again, that's where Lemon Law, that's where the Lemon Law comes in hand and that's where it protects buyers and licensed drivers. So if there's a reasonable number of attempts that you go back to the dealer, and yes, it's painstaking. You lose a lot of time. You lose a lot of money. It's a lot of effort that you got to put in to schedule the, the, the car to get serviced, hopefully get a loaner. All the frustration builds up. It's, it's, it's a lot of wear and tear on you and a lot of money that could be lost. But after a certain reasonable amount of attempts, your vehicle may be deemed a lemon. So then what happens after that? Do you need an attorney? The answer is no. You actually don't need an attorney. But what you do need, what you do need is you do need to know how to resolve this with the dealer. What do I mean by that? Well, in a lot of times, this is something that's in the transactional space, you know, in, in, in the capitalistic model of dealerships taking care of a customer that has a vehicle deemed a lemon is going to be way is going to is going to cost the dealer more than it will bring them in so a lot of dealers this is not something that they will want to do for you this is not something that they were going to they will vocally volunteer to help you with so what do you do about this well one of the things is make sure you keep track of the history of all the services that have been done. Keep track of it, keep it in a folder, have it ready. Know your stuff about it too. When the vehicle was taken back, what was the story being told to you? So then once you have all that information, then you want to be able to take that to either, actually not either, you want to take it to both, the service manager and the general manager. Those two people, those, that's what will trigger all of this. And then what happens after that? Usually what happens after that is there will be a discussion had from the dealership to the manufacturer, in which at that point, the manufacturer will start to come in and look at this. If indeed there is a case to be made that the vehicle that you have is a lemon, the manufacturer then takes over. However, of note, if you want a, you know, a nice little hack, 
as you do prepare to talk to and submit these information to the service manager and the general manager, you can also say, you know, Mr. or Mrs. GM, I'd like to know who is the regional manager from the manufacturer. If not, if not the regional manager, who is it within the manufacturer that handles this and get their information too? And as this thing, you know, as this process continues, what could happen? Well, it could be the case of one of my clients who was driving a 2020 Lincoln Aviator. And after actually, it was about a good year for her. She drove it for a little over a year. And after a year's worth of payments on the vehicle, after a year's worth of taking the vehicle in, after all these loaners, Lincoln Motor Company decided that her particular vehicle was a lemon. And they are refunding her her down payment, all of her monthly payments, and, and a aftermarket item that she got on the car, which was tint. They're refunding all of that to her. Of course, they're not going to repay her for gas and insurance and things of that nature. So this is a good thing. But that's, that's the process by which if you do have a lemon, if you have a lemon, it's a tedious process. It's a, frust- it's a frustrating process. But there has to be a reasonable, reasonable amount of attempts to fix your vehicle before you can deem that car a lemon and before it starts going through this process of getting you some sort of reimbursement back to, again, either pay for your vehicle or you can, you know, you can essentially, you know, and they'll give you all the terms and conditions. They may say you could take all this money and just apply it to another vehicle. Does that mean you have to get another Lincoln? Let's say in her case, no, you don't have to get another Lincoln. Then at that point, you would just want to get the the cash so that you can go elsewhere. Okay, so lemon laws, that was a specific question I got, and I wanted to share that with you. Talked about buying versus leasing versus renting. We talked about auditing a used car. Now let's kind of switch gears a little bit. Cryptocurrency. I was asked, Dennis, is it a good idea to invest in cryptocurrency? Cryptocurrency, especially if if you've been following it over the last two weeks, maybe now. Essentially, after the announcement from Elon Musk saying that they will no longer, or Tesla will no longer be, be receiving Bitcoin because the way that Bitcoin is mined still uses greenhouse gases, and therefore it's not in line with Tesla's mission of decarbonizing the entire world. So since then, a lot of the cryptos have just absolutely tanked. So then, is it a good idea to invest in cryptocurrency? My answer to that right now is use extreme caution. Use a very conservative risk model when investing in crypto. I like the idea of investing in cryptocurrencies. I like the idea of cryptocurrency. I like the decentralized aspect of cryptocurrency. I like the fact that 
I believe you do not get taxed on that. I like cryptocurrency. My problem with it is it's just not a universal accepted currency that you can do things with. So therefore, you, you're essentially putting your money into an asset that you're hoping can buy something. And that's just not the case at the moment. I mean, again, there's people are just essentially holding on to Bitcoins. And, you know, yes, there are certain places that are accepting Bitcoin. But at the same time, too, it's, it's not a universally accepted currency that you could exchange goods and services with. And until that happens, then it's a very risky investment to do. But there is money to be made still. So just use extreme caution. If, if some of the pundits are accurate in, in their assessment, they're saying that the cryptocurrency uh, market right now will just be f- fairly volatile. It's since this lapse, since this last uh, dip, that in the process of getting back to where it was, you know, three weeks ago before the announcement from Elon Musk, it's just going to continue to go up and down. And I think the reason why they say this is this is just common in the market in general, in the stock market in general. This has kind of been the case the first couple weeks of May where the the market and a lot of the tech stocks just absolutely tanked, tanked. Oh, it was painful every day logging into my account. Oh, that was so painful. But as we get out of it, there's, there's, there's a lot of volatility. It's like one day you could be up, the next day all of it is gone. Next day you, you can be up, the following day everything is gone. But things are starting to settle back a bit. And as I had spoken to a gentleman by the name of Jorge, he was asking me about, you know, and he, he doesn't know a whole lot of things of investing in the market. And one of the things that I told him was, one of the things you want to consider when you invest is you need to look for stability. Because when, when the market is stable, that's when you can do a lot of usual trading options trading, whatever it may be. And that stability kind of gives you a guaranteed sense of the outcome of the money you can make. When it's volatile, when you have no idea what the market's going to do, well, then it's, it's much harder to look to make some trades, make some trades for the short term. A couple weeks, a couple months. You kind of want to find that stability. And I think that's what we're going to start going through here shortly over the next couple weeks at least a couple of weeks. I think we're, I, I'm prone to think that the reason why the market tanked at the very beginning of May was not just the hint of inflation, although that is very real. I think the other aspect is the fact that tax day was on May 17th. Tax day got pushed back from April 15th, which it usually is, to May 17th. And for some reason, I think that whatever people were liquidating their investments so that they could make their tax payments. Because certainly, another way to look at investing 
is you're essentially moving money from one person's pocket to another. And let's face it, if you sold your investments towards the end of April, then my money moved from my pocket to your pocket. So I think that's one of the things that I'm led to believe that not a lot of people have talked about on the reason why the market um, did so terrible at the beginning of May, but now it's starting to stabilize a little bit. I think it's because there was also tax day that you had to throw in there that a lot of people were liquidating their investments to you know, just cover their taxes because the market is doing much better these days uh, than it was at the beginning of May. So when it comes to cryptocurrency, just use extreme caution when investing in cryptocurrency. There's a, you know, I have a good buddy of mine. He's talking about Hoge. Hoge is some sort of deflationary currency. Now, apparently, there is a limited amount of Hoge coins. And every time a Hoge coin gets bought and traded, it burns up the, the limit. Now, I don't know exactly if what that all means in the long term or short term or if that's good, but there's just a lot of different coins that are out there. And until it actually starts to buy you things, then it's it's just a very risky investment. And so just use caution when you are looking to invest in cryptocurrency. And this takes me to the last subject. Taxes. Taxes. I do not like paying taxes. Correction. I like to pay the absolute minimum amount of taxes. The most basic minimum level of taxes. And, you know, speaking of taxes, let me read to you a book that I'm reading right now. It's called How Do I Tax Thee by Kristen Tate, a field guide to the great American ripoff. And there's a couple points in here that kind of chat my hide, one of which was reading about a janitor in San Francisco. So let me read to you out of this book here. It says, Want to make over $200,000 a year? No problem. Go work for the San Fran subway system as a janitor. I can't make this stuff up. I can't make this stuff up, folks. Liang Zhao Zhang may be America's luckiest janitor. He cleans the subway stations in downtown San Francisco. Zhang grossed $235,000 in 2015, four times more than his base pay. Let me repeat that. Zhang grossed $235,000 in 2015, four times more than his base pay. He did this by racking up lots of overtime hours. Overtime is something that, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into I don't want to get into just yet the, the concept of overtime, but overtime exists. Whether you work in the private sector, whether you work in the public sector, there is essentially people get time and a half, sometimes more, sometimes less, for working overtime. Now, the thing is, is that depending on your employer, a lot of times overtime does not have a cap. And when it doesn't have a cap, 
that means you can essentially continue to make one and a half times your base rate and just rack up hours and rack up hours. And sometimes those hours, let's be real, sometimes those hours, yes, you are maybe doing something. You are doing something that is part of your job. But there's other, there's other times, many other times, where you're maybe just not clocking out. Maybe you're just hanging out. And this is sometimes the abuse of the system that occurs. And there's no, you know, checks and balances at the end of the day because the reality is, is that who wants a janitor job cleaning the San Francisco subway system? But if you're making $235,000, not including your compensation, you know, not including your benefits, well, I think a lot of people would actually take, take on that job, right? But the reason why they don't is because no one exposes that in the system. Let me read something else to you in this book. This is actually from my hometown, city of Anaheim. It says, in 2013, Southern California City Anaheim awarded an exclusive trash collection contract to a company called Republic Services for $35 million annually. $35 million annually. Interestingly, before being awarded this contract, Republic Services offered the city of Anaheim a franchise fee of $2.5 million and agreed to pay back the city $1.25 million every year going forward. So essentially, of the $35 million, $3.75 million of it was going back to the city. For what? For a quote-unquote franchise fee, for a quote-unquote cost of doing business. Now, you're saying like, well, Dennis, what's wrong with that? City should get back this money for doing business. Well, should they? If they wanted that money, they should essentially just have taken that from the top. But instead, these are those backroom deals that many people talk about. It's Republic Services that gets issued this $35 million contract. And the city of Anaheim, you know, this is taxpayer money here. This is taxpayer money. So the city of Anaheim can't just voluntarily take that taxpayer money. So what do they do? They broker a deal with Republic Services and they say, well, issue us, you know, Republic Service, issue us a franchise fee, one-time fee of $2.5 million. And then also every year pay us $1.25 million for essentially the cost of doing business. So then you're like, okay, Dennis, well, that money's at least going back to the city and it's going back to products and services, or I shouldn't say products or services, it's going back to services that helps benefit the city. Well, maybe. I would believe that if that money just didn't enter the general fund, and that's more than likely what happens, that those funds enter the general fund, and then after that, I mean, that could be used for anything, for anything. That's, there's no specific program that that has to go to. So why do why am I on this 
soapbox of saying, I want to pay the least amount of taxes. Because at the end of the day, I believe that my money is best spent towards products and services that I deem to be of value to me. So when it comes to taxes, you have to know where you can maximize your returns and minimize the amount of money you pay out. For instance, at the most basic level, and I actually plan to do an episode on this, it's going to be a fairly boring one. I'll try to make it as fun as possible, but let's face it. If you're a 1099 worker, if I said to you, the most valuable thing for you to know if you're, when you're filing your taxes as a 1099 worker is Schedule C, did you just tune out right now? Did you even know what I'm talking about? Schedule C is my best friend. Schedule C is the exact worksheet that allows you to write off a lot of things about your business. For instance, perhaps you want to write off gas when you travel. You got to fill up your tank. You can't do it all the time unless, of course, it legitimately is for business. But if you need a, if, if you're traveling from wherever it is, maybe I'm going from here to LA County and I need to fill up my tank. Sure, I could write that off. And right now, is, with gas being as high as it is, me filling up, it's about, it's about $70. Well, I get, I get that full write off. Another thing, working at home. Oh, this is a big thing. You can write off some of your expenses at home, specifically that of your rent or your mortgage. Now, how does that work exactly? Well, you can't just write off the full amount of your rent or your mortgage. Essentially, what you have to be able to do is say, what portion of your house, of your apartment, what percentage of that is used for work versus the entire square footage, right? So you might just have to measure it out. Maybe you keep things simple and it's like, okay, this is one particular room. This is a this is a bedroom we converted to an office. Get the square footage of that. Take that amount, take that square footage, divide it by the total square footage of your house. That that'll give you a percentage. Let's say it's, you know, it shouldn't be too much, maybe about 15%. So then you just take 15% of your monthly rent or your monthly mortgage and that's the portion you can write off. And there is a way to lower your tax burden and maximize your tax savings, your tax return, so that you could keep more of that money to you. So if there's one thing that, you know, in, in talking about taxes here in the, in the question I get of Dennis, how do I look to maximize my tax return? First thing is, don't just send off your taxes to your tax guy. Don't just do your taxes on TurboTax and not know what the hell is going on. And sometimes, honestly, I can tell you this, having done my taxes through TurboTax, it's not always easy to know what's going on. And it's, it's mind-numbing, especially if you don't like this stuff. It's mind-numbing. It does help when someone else does your taxes, and then you can ask them questions about, okay, wait a second, so I understand how you know this amount of expenses wasn't fully deducted here 
oh, well, Dennis, you still have self-employment tax that you have to pay. Oh, okay, I get it. So you can bounce ideas off one another. But understanding your taxes is super, super important if you want to continue to build financial wealth in yourself and, and you want to build prosperity for yourself and your family. Knowing your taxes, looking to, to use every advantage you can to maximize your tax savings is ideal. Okay, that was a long one. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. As we end every episode, cheers, prost, chaim, kipis, nastravi, salut, kampai, mabru, tutsins, gambe, yamas, nastarovie, vo, salute, and saudi to the customer experience. Business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. If you enjoyed the show, please do provide Wisco Weekly a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be here again next week. Bye.